Red Business with Ibeck, building a sustainable, competitive future in Cork business. Hi there, and thanks very much for joining us. Coming up on this episode, we're going to talk about VetCon, which is about vets coming to Cork. We're also going to speak about wind power and how it could be part of the solution to all of our problems. But speaking of solutions, this week we did find out the preferred route corridor of the NM20, the road that's going to link Cork with Limerick. It's going to bypass five towns. There's better public transport promise. There's infrastructure to support cyclists and pedestrians as well. Is it going to be the solution that we were looking for? And more importantly, how quickly are they going to build it? President of Cork Chamber is Paula Cogan. She's with me now. Hiya, Paula. Hi, Jonathan. Good to speak to you. Good to speak to you as well. Um, is is it all it's cracked up to be, this particular design? Because you, you had been advocating for a motorway in the chamber. Yes, but I suppose we started that process 10 years ago, Jonathan. So um, certainly things have moved on since then. Um, All told, unfortunately, this project hasn't. So we're really excited and really welcome um, this uh, announcement in the last two days because it really will make a difference to pushing this forward. Um, And hopefully we will see that road being built in the next 10 years. It, it's funny that we're still talking about it because uh, as long as I have been conscious and driving, uh, the Corks Limerick Road has been an absolute disaster. The, the, once you get past Blarney, you're, you're stuck in this hodgepodge of a road. Um, and it, it there, there's no doubt, that, but it has damaged uh, the ability of the region to compete with Dublin. It has completely. I mean, to think that you have uh, two major cities, Cork and Limerick, not having a fit-for-purpose transport system joining them up. Um, you know, that wouldn't happen in any other country in the world at this stage, Jonathan. And it's a key route. We all know that. I mean, as you say, you've travelled it frequently. I travel it frequently. So do a huge number of our chamber members have to use it on a, on a daily basis. And there is that health and safety issue as well associated with that road. Anybody travelling it will know you're taking your life into your hands at certain points in it. And when you consider the city and... Um, and Limerick and those synergies that now exist for business it's even more important than ever that this gets built Yeah and of course we're sitting here thinking that it's already done and, and that there are, there, there are people already flying up down up and down the dual carriageway I'm not exactly holding my breath Paula Cogan that this is going to be built anytime soon because there's uh, pardon the pun a bit of a road to travel there is. I mean, there's going to be two years of consultation, public consultation associated with this, Jonathan. I mean, it's it's a big project. And again, I suppose if we've learned anything over the years with regards to large infrastructure projects, we need to bring everybody with us as part of that consultation process. Um, so it's going to be very important that that happens. And then, of course, then you're looking at um, a program for tendering. So, yes, I mean, realistically, we are talking 10 years before any of us will be travelling on that route, mm. I would suggest. Yeah, my kids are small. They'll be driving by the time this is finished. So, in other words, is there still an opportunity for the region to be throttled back by this? I mean, we've seen plans that have been unveiled for, for Cork growing as a city. And I know we want people to live in the city and not in ribbon developments along the road. But you know, are we at risk of, of this being another problem that might throttle Cork back? We're hoping not, and that I suppose we have learned from other projects. Um, look at Dunkettle um, and and how that has has and will be delivered. And certainly with this solution, it's what's called a multimodal transport solution. 
So there's 80 kilometres of high quality dual carriageway associated with it. But then there's 80 kilometres of active cycle and walking corridor as well. Um, and a greenway then between Cork and Limerick. Um, and it will also, of course, offer the opportunity for public transport corridors, but for both rail and bus services mm. um, to be enhanced as well as part of that. So it ticks a lot of boxes, I would suggest, from a transport perspective. I mean, as you mentioned, initially we were looking at a motorway. We're not looking at that now. But again, it will allow for those towns that exist on that routeway that are so congested. I mean, I came through Charleville the other day, Jonathan, myself, and just to see those large Arctic trucks coming through. And, you know, there were 30 or 40 of them. Um, I was there for about 20 minutes coming through at that point. Mm. And you had kids coming out of school trying to cross the road. I mean, it is just not fit for purpose in this day and age. So, again, it will reinvigorate those towns associated um, with that routeway. And again, I think it will just so add to the businesses in Limerick and Cork as well. Think, for instance, Shannon Airport. I mean, again, you know, getting to there at the moment from Cork is, is a, a major a journey. That would be so much easier for all of us to be able to have that link between Cork and Limerick. Mm, uh, uh, look, uh, you you are an eternal optimist, Paula. Uh, we've established this. I'm an, I'm a pessimist. Um, and yeah. I, given that I live in Blarney and they've talked for years about the train station in Blarney, th- there's a little bit of this that yes, there's a road and yes, there's going to be public transport, but there has to be political will to get that thing done. And like uh, you know, for example, reopening Blarney train station sounds like it's simple, but we know that takes time and it takes money, and it's money coming from a different pot to the motorway being constructed. So how important is it that we have coordination here as opposed to maybe the the TII going off in one direction on the road and and maybe Irish Rail uh, slowing down proceedings on the other because they don't have the right budget. Yes, well, I suppose uh, from the the rail perspective, that's part of the um, CMATS project, so the Cork Metropolitan Area Strategy. And that uh, funding, the initial round of that funding has been ring-fenced by government. We know that that's there to deliver. So there's no lack of ambition there, Jonathan. The difficulty is actually that, you know, trying to get the stock in, the rail stock, there's about a five-year wait period for that to be delivered. So that's really what's what's going to, I suppose, um, slow down that process there. It's not that the ambition isn't there and that, you know, it will be delivered. But again, you're right. I mean, we're, we're living in unprecedented times. So projects that are just just at that initial phase at the moment are the ones that could be impacted and that would certainly be our concern with regard to the N20, M20 routeway. Well, I'll tell you what, Paula Cogan, it'll be a topic of discussion when you and I take to the stage. It sounds like we're we're getting ready for Dancing with the Stars, but obviously we're preparing for the Cork Chamber Dinner, which is coming up in a few weeks. The first one in nearly three years. I mean, are are you you excited? (laughs) Well, actually, I I did get my first one and this is my swan song, Jonathan. So, um, we Within two weeks of the the annual chamber dinner, um, I will be handing over the mantle to Ronan Murray, who's our incoming vice president. So for me, it's a very it's a very special event. Uh- Always, but I think it will be such a special event for everybody uh, when we get to all be together in Parky Cueve in a couple of weeks' time. Um, certainly, it's been a long COVID for all of us, and I have had the opportunity. Thankfully, Court Chambers had a couple of face-to-face events in the last couple of weeks, and the excitement in the room is palpable. So you can just imagine, take that and multiply that by about. 20 for the number of people <laughs> that would be in that room on the night um, I so be, I cannot impo- tell you I'd be impossible to control I'd be shushing them all night I, I, I can ha- see that will, already I think you'll 
Yeah, Jonathan, you're just going to have to give out, give over at some stage, I think, and <laughs> and, and let people just uh, take it as they will. But yeah, it, it's it's fantastic. And to be honest, I actually at one stage didn't think we'd get to it. I I couldn't see this time last year that we would be able to have an annual dinner again. Um, but it's so great to be planning it. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to the challenge that you've set to me for uh, sideline cuts at half time in the dinner as well. I'm looking forward to that. Make sure you bring your hurley, right? <laughs> Everybody needs to bring one with them, just in case. <laughs> just in case. Paula Cogan, uh, President of Cork Chamber. We'll see you in a few weeks at the Chamber Dinner. But for now, thanks very much for joining us, Paula. A pleasure as always, Jonathan. Thank you. Red Business with IBEC, building a sustainable, competitive future for Cork business. Some of the leading experts in the Irish veterinary sector are heading to Photo Island Resort later this month. It's the return of something called VetCon, which sounds like a great event. Focus sessions, tutorials, networking opportunities, personal training tips from Carl Henry, and even a golf tournament as well, which is not a bad idea given where they're going to be. Cahal O'Shea is the founder of VetCon. He's with me now. Hello, Cahal. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm very well. I'm presuming veterinary is a big business, considering that every town in the country has a vet. Absolutely. It is a huge business, a huge industry. Um, there's a lot of great people working in practice, outside of practice, uh, working you know, in the wider industry as well. So I suppose with VetCon then, we're going to have a lot of different people there, different companies, uh, primarily it's an event for vets and vet nurses to get um, continuing education points and attend lectures and become better vets and vet nurses. But uh, the trade show that is going to be at the event is a huge part of it as well. Uh, so you'll have everyone from the pharmaceutical companies to veterinary wholesalers to accountants, uh, veterinary building architects, you name them. Um, anyone that uh, is involved in the veterinary sector will be at this event. So it's it's a big event and you know, it's a big event for Cork as well and uh, puts Cork on the landmark on the map. I'm guessing that you have been absolutely chomping at the bit to get this going for the last couple of years. How many times did you plan this before it actually happened? Oh, we've rolled over the event, I'd say, three to four times. And we even, like, we delved into the online um, uh, webinar uh, scenario as well uh, in 2020. You know, as soon as COVID hit, uh, we knew that an in-person event wasn't going to be a runner. So we ran an online event and just, it was funny. Like, we worked with a lot of different Cork businesses when running this event. And it was, it's Aperture Media there, run by Daniel Fleming, a great Corkman. He, um, it was his first time let's say dialing in speakers from Australia, dialing in speakers from the UK. And like we ran a very successful online event, but fundamentally, you know, when we're vets and nurses, uh, we're dealing with people, um, we're face-to-face in our daily jobs. And so it's very hard then for someone that's used to meeting people, speaking to people, communicating. It's very hard to kind of learn what you want to learn from an online event. Mm-hmm. So it's the in-person event. Um, and now back in 2022, um, focusing and putting all our energy into 2022 is, um, it's, uh, it's you know, everyone's just dying to get back, really, yeah. and, and meet each other again. I, I remember years ago, I would have worked in the building next to the old veterinary college in Dublin and being fascinated oh, yes. uh, by, by the, a, the noise coming out of it in the centre of the city. Yeah. But it reminded me how varied veterinary practice was because yeah one day you might be dealing with a cat with a sore paw and the next day you're you mm. might be dealing with a horse that has a bigger issue I, it, it is a very very broad church isn't it it is without a doubt and i suppose let's say maybe the public perception of veterinary as a career and as a job is that you know you're just dealing with dogs and cats and cows and you know farm animals but your veterinary degree when you qualify gives you a huge number of opportunities i mean you can continue into academia in research 
you know, some of the greatest scientists um, that are in the world started off with a with a veterinary degree and an understanding of how animals work. Um, you know, you can move into industry, you can move outside of, uh, you know, you can go into practice management, you know, business management. There's just so much you can do in the field of veterinary. So, like you said, it's very varied and you might be dealing with a puppy at one minute, you might, you know, be dealing with um, a sick cow the next. It's, uh, it is hugely varied. Now, well, I suppose they're used to dealing with wild animals and you've invited Ivan Yates down as the MC, I believe. <laughs> yeah, Ivan is uh, chairing a, a debate for us and I suppose, certainly for me, it's it's a it's a debate that we've had planned since 2020 actually and yeah bringing in the wild animal that is Ivan Yates has been on the cards since 2020 because I suppose you might have seen actually Jonathan there's quite a few articles have sprung up in media recently and there's some news pieces on let's say how the veterinary industry is in, in maybe at a crossroads or in crisis when it terms to, in when it comes to recruitment and retaining people within the profession and this is something that at VetCon, we want to provide, I suppose, an unbiased, independent forum for, for discussion and debate. So Ivan is going to get the answers that the veterinary sector needs um, to try and, you know, make it better. And uh, Ivan will be, has three panellists in front of him, or three victims, you might call them. Uh, we've got the Dean of the Veterinary School, Michael Doherty, coming. Uh, the President of the Veterinary Council of Ireland, Vivian Duggan, is also going to be on the panel. And then the representative body for Vets and Vet Nurses, Veterinary Ireland, uh, the President, uh, Joe Collins, is coming there as well. So we've got a, a great lineup for that uh, debate. And uh, I, I trust Ivan wholeheartedly when it comes to getting the answers that we all need. <laughs> oh, you get the answers. Whether they want to give them or not is another question. It sounds like a great event. A VetCon taking place at the wonderful Fota Island Resort. Best of luck to you and everyone else taking part. Carl O'Shea, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. Much appreciated. Red Business with IBEC. Building a sustainable, competitive future for Cork business. There's a big discussion right now about how we can power our country into the future. And while we are still painfully dependent on fossil fuels, there is an alternative. And that alternative seems to be coming a little bit faster than it might have done had we not had an international crisis that has pushed prices upwards. My next guest is somebody who has recently been named as the Irish Wind Industry Champion of Renewables at the annual Irish Wind Awards. He is a research fellow at University College Cork. Dr Paul Dean, how are you? I'm very well, Jonathan. Thank you for, thanks for having me on. It's lovely to talk to you. Um, the, the terrible situation in Ukraine has focused our minds a little bit, particularly in this country, whereby we actually have an alternative to burning things. It's within our grasp. It had been coming a little slowly. Do you think that one of the side effects of the crisis in energy right now could be the fact we, we really need to expedite how quickly we, we use wind in this country? Oh, indeed, uh, Jonathan, you know, and the terrible events in Ukraine have not only focused on the terrible hardship of, of people in Ukraine, but also how reliant we are in Europe, and uh, not only in Europe, but very much in Ireland on fossil fuels. You know, in Ireland, we project this image of Ireland being very green and very sustainable, but actually we're one of the most uh, reliant countries on, on fossil fuels right across Europe. Over 80% of all of our energy, uh, billions of euros every year is spent on fossil fuels. So we're very much dependent on fossil fuels. And unfortunately, we're seeing the consequence of that dependency at the moment reflected in our energy bills and our home heating bills and our electricity bills. Now, one thing that we are very strong at in Ireland is certainly for uh, producing clean, renewable uh, electricity from wind. And this is one of the stories, I suppose, that we will see accelerated over the next number of years. Last year, for example, uh, about just under half, about 40% 
of our electricity came from uh, clean renewable resources such as wind alone and really what we need to do now at the moment is fast track that as much as we can uh, get as much clean electricity as we as we can into the grid and then the challenge in is using that electricity in other parts of the economy that, that don't yet use electricity or cars which are very reliant on oil or home heating which is very reliant on gas that's the challenge then for the longer term into mm. the future now it's, it's a very calm week uh, the week we're speaking so uh, the sun has been shining it's been lovely a uh, little chilly today but uh, not, a, not a huge amount of wind so is the solution moving away from onshore winds to offshore where the wind always kinds of blows even on a calm day yeah, and certainly by mixing up the types of technologies, that will help a lot. But actually, you know what, as well, solar is actually something that's coming into the mix and, and, and quite moving quite rapidly at the moment in Ireland. We typically think of ourselves of having a lot of wind and waves and a lot of land, but actually the solar resource is quite impressive here in Ireland as well. And again, times when the wind isn't isn't blowing, if it's very sunny, that can help out a lot. So it's really looking at all these technologies, looking at our onshore resource for wind, which we're already quite successful at, but then looking to our oceans for uh, um, uh, offshore and floating wind, and then looking to our even our, our rooftops for solar to, to fill the gap in between. Yeah, and um, I, as someone who has got solar panels, I've spoken about them before, they're brilliant. I don't know why every every home isn't just given them so that they can generate electricity for themselves and feed it back into the grid. Now, the government has been accused of being a laggard more than once on the environment. Lots of people in the sector have been critical of the delays in bringing forward planning uh, for, for offshore wind or indeed even developing strategies around key green uh, agendas such as hydrogen. Now, that there is planning for, for offshore wind. We know that, that that was progressed last week by Eamon Ryan, but could the government be doing more? Certainly. Look, and we have been dragging our feet over the last 10 years, not only in energy-related issues, but also in climate energy, on climate issues right across Ireland. A big challenge was really coherence, getting different government departments, getting different authorities, planning authorities to talk to each other. Now, putting coherence in place across a planning process costs very little to the exchequer, but actually, if it's not there, it can cost the exchequer an awful lot in terms of lost opportunities and lost projects. So, thankfully, in the last year or two, we're seeing that coherence develop, making it a lot easier for the planning process to be streamlined, to be cohesive and to be coherent. And really what we want to do is we want to make good planning and environmental decisions, but we want to make them a little bit quicker and we want to make them with an urgency that's attached to the energy crisis at the moment. So hopefully we're going to see things move a lot quicker in the future and a lot more good decisions be made in yeah. the planning process. I, I, I remember reading that it's going to be 2030 before we have our first offshore wind being generated and brought ashore. I mean, that seems too far away for the crisis that we're in right now. Do you think it could happen sooner? It's going to be very challenging, you know, and the, the, the future in moving away from fossil fuels is very clear, but the present is actually the problem. Over the next five to ten years, even two decades, even if we look at the wider economy and how we're going to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. So we do need to try and fast track things as much as we can. But in the near term, in the over the next year, two to three years, the government really need to be looking at encouraging energy conservation. That means saving energy. If we all, for example, Jonathan, could save about 10 percent of our energy each year, that would offer the same supply benefit as doubling all the amount of wind and Ireland at the moment. So we talk a lot about supplying energy, but actually reducing energy is one of those things that's most cost effective. Yes, there is an inconvenience involved. It's politically unpopular in many circles, but in the short term, the government need to be doing two things. Number one, look into the future, getting these planning processes in place, but also encouraging people to use as little energy as possible where they can and when they can. Congratulations on the award again. What does it mean to be honoured uh, in the way that you were by the industry at the annual Irish Wind Awards? 
Always oh, delighted. I was delighted for, for myself, obviously, for my colleagues. You know, it's so important to have independent voices in research at the moment and working in UCC, working in Mara, we're very privileged to have that independent voice, objective voice to, to speak to the evidence, I spoke, uh, I suppose, and to speak to power in terms of what's needed uh, rather than following kind of certain industry narratives. So we're, we're very delighted to be recognised for our contribution to that. OK, well, it just shows you how much uh, the world has changed when somebody who becomes an Irish wind champion is being celebrated for something other than what came out of them. Uh, but we are <laughs> celebrating uh, your award, the Irish Wind Industry Champion of Renewables, Dr. Paul Dean, uh, Research Fellow at University College Cork. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Thanks, John. Thanks a million. Red Business with IBEC, building a sustainable, competitive future for Cork business. One more quick one before we go. 916,000 young people currently in schools around Ireland. And my next guest is part of a group that says we need at least 20% of them to consider a career in STEM. And if we're going to maintain our trajectory as a global leader in lots of industries, we need to do that. Susan hayes Cullerton is from STEM Southwest. Hi, Susan. Hello, Jonathan. Delighted to be here. Lovely to talk to you again. Uh, Tell us where you got your 20% figure from. Well, Jonathan, when you look at the planning from the point of view of all of those large companies all around the world that are focusing on science, technology, engineering and maths, as well as the industries that you may not even think about, for example, the digital arena or the creative industries, they're now also looking for people who can join their teams with that logical mindset, with the ability to solve problems in a STEM way. Or, of course, when you look at the innovation sector as well and you look at all of the all of the jobs that we don't even know the names of yet, they too are looking for people who have got the backgrounds and the competences r- related to STEM. So it's actually a really exciting statistic, the fact that one in five of tomorrow's talent ultimately will need these competencies and th- such exciting opportunities await them. We always talk and rightly so about trying to get women involved in STEM but what you're Mm -hmm. saying is yeah that's really important and let's keep doing that but we also need to convince boys that there's a career for them there as well Oh absolutely I mean the there are opportunities there for everybody and there's no doubt about it based on the work that I have been looking at over the past while there definitely is a, a, a deficit there in terms of that gender balance but all the same we do need to involve everybody in this and the other thing too as well here Jonathan is that I think the term STEM isn't necessarily accurate in terms of how people perceive it to be so there can be a a sense that these are very traditional careers or that you know people wear certain uniforms whereas actually the reality is is that they're far more diverse and inclusive um, and tangential as well like I mentioned there about industries that you may not necessarily think are associated with them but the other key thing as well that I think is important is that having a STEM background of which I do myself my own degree originally was financial maths and economics is that by having the ability to think through things logically to come up with different solutions to problems, being able to refine a solution or be able to come up with understanding what an actual problem really means and and how it needs to be implemented for a customer or an organisation or government, etc. Those can be applied into any type of career. And that's the key thing that I think we need to think about when it Mm. comes to this conversation. When teachers are doing this, obviously they're doing it as as their profession and they'll do their part. But mom and dad need to step up here as well and encourage children if they see something or if they, if if an idea is expressed about what what might I want to do well if the conversation flows to well you enjoy biology or you enjoy physics or you enjoy maths then let's try and look at careers in that area that mam and dad are probably very important in solving the forthcoming shortage of workers 
I'm very fortunate I get to work with thousands of teenagers every year, Jonathan, and parents are exceptionally influential. And that's not going to come as a surprise to anybody. But I also maybe just want to pull in the heartstrings of some of your listeners here today. And that is that often what mom and dad, and of course, we can have moms and moms and dads and dads, etc. for all of the people who are influential in these young people's lives. It is important to consider that sometimes we approach the people that we love from a point of view of protection. How do we help them avoid things? How do we help them avoid being unemployed or avoid maybe being in a job that can be very volatile <clears throat> or avoid being in a low paid job, etc. Whereas that type of a conversation can often refer back to, well, what's stable employment or what is their loss of employment in today? The reality is, is that one's career is quite future focused and it should, just as you're saying there, be based on what you're passionate about or what you're interested in. So I find that a lot of conversations around careers need to start off with, just like you're saying there, what are you interested in? What subjects do you like? And then looking at, well, what opportunities are there that you can map those skills into? But I will also give you another statistic that sometimes frightens me. And that is based on all of the teenagers that we've worked with this academic year. I've learned that 40% of teenagers, their number one fear is, what if I don't enjoy what I'm going to do? And the, the number one answer to that, Jonathan, is by having transferable skills, by having skills that you can use and bring into other jobs in the future. And therefore, at least you give yourself options. Mm. So to those mums and dads that are out there that I would say, First of all, it's probably going to be your natural impulse to try to protect your teenagers being unemployed in the future. We get that. But if you start off the conversation more so from what are you interested in, understanding those transferable skills and then looking at all of the opportunities that are out there. And also, as well, Jonathan, sometimes parents can be very hard on themselves by trying to figure out and know all of what's out there. I, in the world that I inhabit, don't know what jobs are going to be out there tomorrow. So as a result of that, I would say open up the conversations with people that they interact with, encourage them to go to industry events or to go ahead and, and to talk to people in different colleges or who have taken different traditional careers and non-traditional careers and apprenticeships, etc., and make it a voyage of discovery, an mm. exciting one. And that can really take the pressure yeah, off. Yeah, and, and just remind them, they're probably going to have more than one career in their life. In fact, uh, the, our generation certainly yeah. has has shown that you can have more than one and you're not going to be pigeonholed no matter what happens. Susan, you're holding a series of virtual exhibitions uh, this week. How can people get involved and, and who, are you, who are you targeting with that? I have got the superb job of being host of STEM Southwest this year and it's taking place on Wednesday evening between 6 and 9pm. It's totally free to attend for a start and it's online so it's accessible to absolutely everybody. And what's going to happen during this is that number one we're going to be talking to individual people. I'm going to have a fireside chat with Fanula O'Reilly who has got her own TV show in America talking to people about their careers. We're also going to have a panel of industry and, and other type of experts as well all around careers but also opportunities that are happening. And apart from that, though, because it'll be far from passive, every single person who joins us will be able to talk on a one to one basis with the companies who are creating the jobs tomorrow in the southwest region. And on top of that as well, there's going to be a series of presentations made. There's going to be a scavenger hunt right across the platform. There's going to be lots and lots going on. And the idea there, Jonathan, is that people who will join us and both second and third level uh, participants are second and third level students, I'd say, are, are welcome to join us, but also parents and teachers as well, that we want you to take away three things. One is a greater sense of self-awareness about what you like. Number two is also a greater understanding of what's going to come down the track. But number three is that then you can plot forward your path after that about who you might like to have a further conversation with. So everyone is super welcome and it's going to be a fantastic event and as I say, absolutely accessible to all. All right, stemsouthwest.ie is the website if you want to register there. Susan Hayes-Culleton, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck with it.
Thanks a million, Jonathan. And that's it from this episode of Red Business. Kira McDonough was the producer. Don't forget the video series is up and running on redfm.ie. That's Red Business in focus. Some great stories. Thanks to the local enterprise officers for viewing there. But as for this podcast, we'll catch you on the next one. Get the Red Business podcast every week with Jonathan Healy at redfm.ie and wherever you get your podcasts. Red Business with IBEC, building a sustainable, competitive future for Cork business.